0: Hey, this is Daryl from Snapcase, and you're listening to the new scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the new scene. I am your host, Keith, and we are back once again with a brand new episode. And folks, we've got a great one for you tonight. The one, the only, Josh English of Attempt Survivors. And we cover it all. We cover Josh's history and music. We talk about the wonderful Six Going On Seven. We talk about Josh's travels all over the country for various musical pursuits. We talk about his exciting new band on iodine recordings, Attempt Survivors, excellent post-hardcore band featuring members of Seisha and Helmet. That conversation with Josh is coming up very soon. But first, folks, let's talk about us, huh? Hmm? Support the new scene in the following ways. Follow the new scene on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New scene Pod. I am attempting to get us over 3,700 followers, and we did for a second, but then it dropped back down, and, you know, this is how this goes. So if you're not following us on social media, do it. Follow our main and clips YouTube channels. Full episodes on the main channel. Highlights from our favorite episodes on the clips channel. Just search YouTube for the new scene. Purchase our shirt at the Deathwish Inc. store. Head on over to the Deathwish Inc. store. Search the new scene. The shirt pops right up. Your purchase of that shirt helps directly fund this show. And we are very appreciative of everybody who has purchased a shirt so far. And of course, reviews. Folks, we are getting closer and closer to 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So if you have not given us a five-star review yet, please open up your app, hit the five-star button, and if you write a nice review in Apple Podcasts, I'll read it on the air. And I'm going to do that right now, because we have a new review from Jedediah859. Jedediah says, Really, really great. Five stars. The show's excellent. Keith's enthusiasm and ease of conversation makes it easy to become a fan of everyone he speaks with. Super interesting, fun show. Jedediah, thank you. Folks, you should be doing what Jedediah is doing. I mean, you have everything to gain and nothing to lose. If you like the show, hit that five star button. It helps out a lot. Thank you so much, Jedediah. And thank you, everyone who has submitted a review. And folks, don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. Iodine just launched official merch for Orange Island. Head on over to the Iodine Recordings store at Deathwish Inc. to pre order Orange Island's One Night Stay LP. Orange Island are an excellent post-hardcore band out of Massachusetts. Think Glassjaw, Think Movie Life, Think Thursday, that excellent post-hardcore sound that we know and love. Check it out. You want it, you need it. Nathan Gray and the Iron Roses have a tour kicking off November 28th with Clowns and Black Guy Fawkes. Head on over to Nathan Gray's website or Instagram to get those tour dates and check out more Iodine stuff at iodinerecords.com. Awesome merch, awesome bands. Go check it out. Let's talk some music recommendations, huh? Why not? Now, folks, I don't know if you're onto the Greet Death New Low EP yet, but you have to hear this thing. There were four singles out. The last single, New Low, is out, and we know now that it is a five-song EP. It's one of my favorite releases of the year so far. It's on Deathwish, another great label. Check it out. These guys can do no wrong. I've been listening to this thing nonstop. And I've been on a big summer music kick. I'm back onto the Mall Walker debut four-song EP. We had the boys from Mall Walker on our show a while back. Check that out for some excellent, fun summer tunes. I'm still spinning Little Greenhouse by Anxious A Lot, another great warm weather record. I'm still spinning Start Living by Hey Thanks a ton, another great warm weather record. Check out the debut from Hey Thanks if you haven't done that yet. There's a lot of great music out there, and it's almost impossible to keep up with it. And I love that. I love that. That's much better than uh, having nothing to listen to. All right, so check back in with me at Segment 3. I'll talk about how I'm doing. But folks, right now, we are going to speak to Josh English of Attempt Survivors. Enjoy. (laughs) Enjoy. See Folks, we're here now with Josh English. Josh, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks so much. Nice to be here.
0: It's wonderful to have you here, Josh. You know, I've been doing a lot of research on you, and it
1: is
0: (laughs) staggering the number of amazing bands and situations and various things you've been involved with. And we're going to jump into all of that, Josh. But first, a very important question How are you doing today?
1: Oh, so far, so good. Thank you. A little like, mildly overtired given uh erratic sleep schedule with being in the studio, but that's, you know, part and parcel for that sort of stuff and it's fine. It's fine.
0: Yeah. And that's kind of a fun way to be exhausted, you know?
1: Absolutely. I feel like I'm here for this, you know, singular purpose and I need to sort of be all in. So a few hours less of sleep is a small price to pay, you know.
0: Exactly. And, uh, folks who so I was talking to Josh, uh, moments before we hit record, he was in <laughs> Gloucester, Massachusetts, which Josh, you told me is the home of Gorton's of the Gorton's fish. Yes.
1: According to the, uh, the co-owner of the studio told me that today, let me know America's oldest fishing village. When you drive in according to the, and, and the Gorton's fisherman logo, you know, which I remember it so vividly burned into my brain from fish sticks as a kid, which I've not eaten in forever. Um, that, uh, that's like a reappropriation of the statue that sits at the front of the town. So that's a nice little funny thing.
0: That's amazing. I, I'm, I'm thinking about eating fish sticks as a kid, and it's mind-blowing to me. I could never do that now. I just wouldn't. I, likewise. <laughs> <laughs> what are you recording? What are you there working on? So
1: I'm my friend Adam Taylor, he worked for years and years, um, adjacent Paul Coldery, who – Paul Kolderie did a bunch of Radiohead stuff and Lemonheads and Hole and um Peter Wolf and a lot of New England stuff but he his his scope was wider than that. He was one half of a, a production team in the 90s like Slade and Coldery, who did all these sort of you know alt rock records for lack of a better you know description and Adam my friend is significantly younger but was his intern for a long time and did a bunch of stuff at these various studios primarily at one called camp street. And when I kind of moved from doing um, the end of six, and seven and just sort of moving into trying to do solo stuff, I, I met him through his sister and he's a phenomenal engineer. And we have a lot of like similar musical touchstones and also a lot of them that he's, he's just sort of a music nerd all around, which I am as well and love. And so sonically we were constantly referencing things and sending each other things back and forth. And so I've done, um, three full length records and an EP with him. The last record I did solo was on the West coast, um, because I had to stay local. I was doing a collaborative thing and it didn't allow for me to get back here. So now I'm back here. We just did, uh, six original songs tracked and, uh, a cover that I've been wanting to do that I'm kind of sitting on for something, uh, down the line. And now we're in the process of kind of banging out the overdubs piece by piece in the, in the land of fish sticks.
0: Oh, nice. And when, when you record a solo record, what do you do? Do you do everything? Do you play drums? Do you play guitars?
1: Um, I play, I, no, I never play everything. Um, I did it on a, uh, I did a tour with Frank Turner in the UK and we, in, for that thing, we each had to do, um, two punk covers, in doing that, I played um, I played everything on those two songs. I did a cover of uh, "I Don't Want to Hear It," the Minor Threat song, and then I did a cover of uh, "Where Eagles Dare." And uh, for those sessions, I, I recorded them with Adam. And I did, you know, the drums. Everything was like rudimentary on the drums, but I, I got through it. I, I hacked my way through it. But primarily, no, I, I love I love the feeling of a band. I love the band configuration. It's just, you know, I found myself doing solo stuff because I wanted to continue writing songs, and it's really different vantage point trying to think about how do I get the right people to do the, you know, at some point the process just becomes doing it. So yeah, anyway, so no, I, I mean, I, I've, uh, my friend Will that was in six going on seven is actually the drumming on this stuff. He's a phenomenal drummer, sweetheart, just has some of the best natural backbeat. And then a guy named Tony Goddess is playing some of the bass. Um, he played in this band, Papas Fridas. Um, and I am, playing some of the bass and then Adam will probably play some stuff. We've got a guy named Lyle Brewer coming in to do some of the more technical guitar. I play like mostly the rhythm guitar and I'll play leads on things that are um, like real heavily affected or whatever, just whatever I want kind of, you know, like whatever I can get through. But I like the counterpoint of having other people always that feels good to me. You know, you kind of feel like you're playing on train tracks sometimes when you play a lot of overdubs on your own stuff or you singularly do. You know, right. So to get that push and pull of like real people and somebody else's vantage point and they're, you know, I'm kind of ensconced in this world with um, where somebody like Adam goes like, oh, I know this guy and he's good at this. And I'm like, oh, cool. You know, and I, there's an implicit trust there. So like, I got to play the last, the the EP we did five years ago, um, we had Dave Maddox drumming on it. Dave Maddox is, um, was in this band, the Fairport Convention, like a fairly big British folk thing. Played with Richard Thompson, and he also played with Ecstasy and Roseanne Cash. He played on a uh, he played on the second Nick Drake album, Brighter Later, and uh, one of the Paul McCartney records, Lesser Known. One of the you know so so having like that sort that's the sort of person that he's like oh I know this guy let's get him <laughs> you know those are those are happy accidents that I I've, I'm always. Wildly humbled to be in the the same orbit as those people. But more than anything, I just enjoy the process of like learning so much from those people, what they have to offer and how they approach things. And, you know, and hopefully I can contribute something to that, you know, to that soup and, and, uh, whatever. But, you know, so that's, that's how we're doing this one. It's a lot of like, there's like, we've got Will on drums and then it's just kind of like a, potpourri of (laughs) whoever's around in uh in you know the little fishing village
0: yeah you would just hit people up it's like hey come by and play this or are you available to do that yeah
1: i mean we've got a few things that are set i can play a lot of stuff if i have to you know and then there's other things where i'm like i really want like a you know a real keith Richards style solo on this and i'm not going to get that so can we get this guy you know
0: (laughs) so yeah so did you grow up in Portland?
1: I did. I did. I was born in, uh, I was born in San Francisco because my mom was teaching at the time, um, young, like young married couple. And my dad was in uh, graduate school. So I was born there and lived there early on, but like shortly ba- moved back to Portland after he graduated and everything. And then, um, and that's where I lived, you know, most of my relevant early years, you know, until I moved yeah. to the east coast, so
0: and talk about growing up there. Did you discover the music scene there? Did you get involved with things there?
1: I mean, certainly not early on. You know, my mom was a elementary, high school, middle school music teacher, depending on what era we're talking about. So, you know, I was exposed to her stuff, but I also really like that was a that was a real small. I, I grew up in this neighborhood. North Portland, um, which anybody that's from there would kind of know it near near St. John's. And I kind of like in close proximity, there was like a, a mini mart that I got my candy from. And then the other direction, there was a AM PM slash gas station. <laughs> and across <laughs> the street from that, there was um, a place called Everybody's Record Tapes and Video. And that place was like sort of the seminal landmark for me for buying everything from 45s to cassettes to cds to you know all of that stuff so that was like where a lot of my initial purchases happened and it was also a it was like one half head shop one half like video store record store so that was the one
0: that's perfect that's all you need right there candy shop and record shop i would have been in heaven
1: both accessible a little longer (laughs) to the candy shop a little closer to the record store so that might be you know if if not for that maybe i'd be you know a I'd, I'd be making taffy in a in a fishing village.
0: Did you move out to Boston to play in six, going on seven?
1: I did. I, I moved out to Boston to play with Will specifically. Um, prior to even knowing James, I had a bunch of songs written. I was like, I got this demo from this stuff I was doing on the West Coast and this stuff, and it was as as innocent and serendipitous as Will going, "Hey, I work in the deli with this guy. He's a good guitar player, and he and we, you know." We kind of enjoy each other's taste and what have you. James, like, you want to play with them? <laughs> I was like, sounds great. And uh, we got in a room and, and just started working on stuff. And and it just was, I mean, I think we knew in, you know, 30 seconds, like, this is the right thing.
0: How old were you when you moved out there?
1: Oh, I was early 20s. So, wow. real, yeah.
0: That's a, that's a big move. How did you know Will? How did you make the decision to go out there? I,
1: I had one semester of college with Will. And that was Uh. like the, that was, and then he moved back and yeah, in, in that time, it was just a, a natural fit, you know, like at that point in time, I'm probably way more into Northwest scene sort of stuff and, you know, like punkier stuff and all of the Portland iconic band, you know, bands like Poison Idea and all that stuff, but also a lot of like the Pacific Northwest stuff as it extends to like, uh, you know, Mud Honey or any of the Sub pop bands, early bands, because I, you know, being in close proximity to those places, Portland at that time was not Portland as it is today. It was not a destination city in the same way. And it was, it was a West Coast flyover country city in a lot of ways. (laughs) Even though there's a great history of music, it was a real insular place. And a lot of bands that I wanted to see that I didn't end up seeing live till I moved to the East Coast is just based on they would play, you know, San Francisco, and then they'd go to Seattle, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then later, now that's not the case at all, but then it was. And so I think by fortune of that and like pre-social media and pre a lot of, you know, ubiquitous internet stuff, it just sort of germinated this really interesting scene. And Portland's scene was, you know, had, uh, was symbiotic in some ways to Seattle's, but also very different, like also, you know, was just far enough, you know, three hours away, it's enough of a difference that it had its own thing too. So yeah, when I was playing music early on, you know, like, like every, every initial incarnation of stuff, you're just trying to rip off shit that you, that you like, you know, you, you're, you're emulating your favorite stuff. You're not, exactly. There's no attempt at disguising your influences or any, anything, you know, and you, yeah. and you may not even know, you're just trying to like, go like, Ooh, can I sound like that? Cause that, you know, that gives me chills. Can I, can I sound like that or try to sound like that? You know, and then eventually if I feel like songwriting was more like my sort of like longer term trajectory, that's what I really worked on because that's what I'm, you know, there there are people everywhere that can sing better than me, play better than me, you know, whatever. I just realized like where my strengths were and what I wanted to improve and also kind of like what I enjoyed And that was it. And so that, you know, once you start doing that, then you, you know, it's like, if you want to be an author, you just, you know, you read stuff and you refine stuff and you want to, uh, you want to have your own voice. You want to have something that like is distinctly you that, you know, that it's okay. If that's polarizing, if somebody's like, this fucking is not my thing at all. Like, I I can't stand this fine, whatever. Like, you know, do I, is there a reaction? Is that you know like do I have people that like it and people that don't like it and, you know in the same way I, I'm my own worst critic in so many ways you know I uh, I'm cynical <laughs> for sure <laughs> you know like everybody that that lives in this world for any amount of time is but I also like I love hearing something that's like how did I never hear that song before I, I'm still just as thrilled by art as I was back then
0: that's where you start you just have to do it you just have to keep doing it you emulate the stuff that you love. And then if you stick with it long enough and you keep doing it, you develop your own style and you're not just copying what you're hearing. Like I've copied riffs that are almost exactly the same from stuff I heard. And I didn't even realize it. Same with lyrics too.
1: Sure. Sure. And and it's, you know, there's such a wide swath of stuff. Like I'm doing this band project right now. And I named a song, something that turned out to be, because it's a line or it's a little phrase from a song. And there's a song By the same name, and I want to ditch it because it drives me nuts. I'm like, no, I got to think, I got to pull a different line from a song. It's got a different, you know. And and Adam, one of my bandmates, is uh, and 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 old friend, is like, no, 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 like that's the perfect song title. You got to leave it. And I'm like, fuck, I don't, you know. So there's that little push pull and those sort of things. But yeah, absolutely, like identity, you know, of some sort.
0: I was thinking about it today. There are bands that took iconic lines from other bands, right? But I don't know the line from the iconic band. I know it from the band I discovered. So I think Oh funny. I think you just have to do your thing and then it becomes your thing and people discover it through you. Now I'm not saying go out there and steal whatever you want and just replicate it, but it's like, I don't know, you just you just build your own existence.
1: No, I mean like I I guess I guess the, the meta, the meta version of this is if I'm going to name, you know, a record, the white album <laughs> or, <laughs> or, you know, um, whatever, you know, Sergeant yeah. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, that better be a tongue in cheek reference or a cover album, you know, right. something like that. There are other things that are more like their vocabulary words, their everyday words and, you know, their things, but, but I, you know, I also really, really love, I've got a couple authors that I read voraciously and people that I, you know, that I, Come back to over and over because um, because they teach me so much about language and words and all that stuff. And then I love like you know the Leonard Cohens and the Tom Waits of the world or the you know Nick Caves and some of those some of that's the delivery of those lines. But a lot of times, like in the course of Leonard Cohen, it's like phenomenal standalone writing. It's great writing. Forget you know forget like it, its use in like rhyme scheme and like employed as lyrics. That's one of those people that like blows my mind, you know, with some of the gravity of what they write. Absolutely. And, uh, I, I aspire to feeling that way and, and hope, you know, you know, in, in a song and trying to convey some of that at the risk of that sounding super pretentious, which I'm sure it did, but that wasn't my intention. It's just, it means so much to me. Like I get chills when I hear certain songs now, years later, you know, and that's a, it's, um. I'm all in. <laughs> you know?
0: Absolutely. So you're in Boston. You are forming Six Going On Seven, right? Now, what What year is this around? Uh,
1: 1995, we played our first show.
0: Wow. Okay. So, so you're in Boston in 1995. Now, this is a great time for music. And there's so much incredible stuff that has come out of Boston. Talk about some of the bands you knew and what was going on at the time.
1: Early on, I'm trying to think of who was around. I mean, that was certainly early Hydrahead era, you know, like the beginning of Hydrahead for sure was one. Um, Maybe the beginning-ish of Big Wheel, although that that, that I think is like slightly later, but roughly the same time, the beginning of Bridge Nine. So the convergence of those three that that accounts for a lot of what was going on in terms of like, hey, if I if I had a peer, you know, or whatever, or or somebody that I knew or saw live, those tended <laughs> a lot of bands could could have or potentially were or or absolutely were on one of those three labels. If that makes sense? Oh, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah, you know. So I I remember before I lived with anybody. I, I did I lived with um, Kevin i lived with greg a latart this guy that was in this band um opposition and then he was later in this band get high which um kevin Rowe sang for and kevin is now the bass player of dropkick murphy's but he's just sort of been a a you know he booked shows and he did things in the scene and those you know i was super into the diy thing just in general um and met him and lived with those guys for a little bit and then eventually met um I'm trying, I met, you know, Jonah when he was an only living witness, um, before, like pre Milltown, And then I met all the cave in guys and Brian McTurnan, and, um, all of those things were like in this Aaron Turner from Hydrahead Rama from big wheel, um, all the bands that were around at the same time. And, and really there was no similar to Portland. This is where it paralleled Portland was. Um, there was no real delineation of like genre on shows at, at that point in time.
0: Right. And this was more common back in the late 90s. You'd have a very mixed bill. Even when I got into shows in like 1999, you'd have a really cool indie band with a ska band with a metalcore band.
1: Absolutely. And I think that that's, I think like, you know, I don't know how objective I can be, but I think, you know, from my, certainly my two cents, like that made for a very cool feeling time. It was almost like we're all in this together, you know, and it rather than, Something where if you didn't have the, you know, the four on the floor breakdown, like that, you know, nobody was going to get through your set. Like yeah. that that was some of the joy for me of independent music is kind of the joy of discovery, quite frankly, you know, of like you could go like, oh, I, I'm into this. And, you know, like I used to love to wear um black metal T-shirts on stage in six going seven and also death metal shirts because I liked that stuff and I knew that stuff. Like, you know, I, I loved obituary. From I think Tampa, um, you know, and, and those were real things that I knew. It wasn't just. It wasn't like a wink, wink, ironic thing. Like yeah. cause of death is is a record that I love, <laughs> you know. So I, I think that that was sort of indicative, like of you know people play one thing and they present one thing, but I guarantee you that all of these people, they've got a, a wider you know a wider pole <laughs> in terms of what they're incorporating.
0: You have a lot of connections to recent guests on our show. You were roommates with Brian McTurnan, right?
1: I was, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, for sure. And, uh,
0: he was just on the show. Awesome. Um, you were, uh, six going on seven, had Heartbreaks, Got Backbeat out on some records. That was Walter Schreifel's label, right? it,
1: It was. And then, and then Brian and Sammy from some and I. Did this project in 1998 that just or 1999 whatever that just came out called Forget Forget that was just uh, us recording and like uh, um, some songs over a a day basically that Brian and I had worked on on our couch when we lived together in uh, Brighton and uh, Sammy came and played drums on them and they were supposed to come out in Revelation years ago and I don't remember exactly what happened but it was something we at the time wanted to pursue more seriously, because it was post Milltown, the band that he'd been in that had been on uh, Warner Brothers.
0: Yeah, you know, I had never heard Milltown until Brian reminded me of them when he was on the show, and I went back and listened, and unbelievably good. That's like the exact type of music I really love.
1: Yes, I I really liked all of those guys that I knew. I I only kind of, I didn't, I knew them all, but I didn't really know Matt, the other guitar player as well, but I lived with Jay, the bass player, and I lived with Brian, both at the both together and separately, um, and then Rob, the drummer I knew, and then Jonah I knew from I met Jonah like way before I met Brian or any of those other guys because six going on seven played early show with uh, or one or two with uh, only the witness the bandy had prior. and so for me they're very much like a um, and I mean this in the best way like a like a New England ACDC in that <laughs> in that they did they did one thing. Like they had a thing that they did and they did it really fucking well. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, So they're like, oh yeah, we got five new songs, you know, like whatever, you know, the next set you see them and they just very prolific. And, and it was, it was a a great, uh, it was a great time. It was fun. You know, I lived with Brian and Jay both, I think when, uh, when they were making their major label record that never came out.
0: Is that record sitting on a shelf somewhere? did they make it
1: i think it's all i think it's all available via like YouTube or one of these other things and and there were there were some songs like live that I loved that they that they're documented in those sessions. I think they had a i think they had all sorts of issues with the producer you know like i'm I'm just giving you like my third person account, but like I said, I live with them at the time, so they were at this big bougie studio spending all sorts of money with a guy who'd done some like Metallica B-sides and this and that. And he was just making all sorts of aesthetic or sonic rather choices, sonic choices that just were not, it's like he didn't hear the band that way that everybody else did.
0: So I heard another interesting thing, Josh, you were in a pre-ISIS band with Aaron Turner,
1: Union Suit. I was. In, and that's like a, one of those weird. So I played with a couple different people that I in my mind, I never like joined quote unquote, if that makes any sense. You know, I don't know how much that matters, but I, I did, you know, I knew Aaron through the Hydrahead connection and I knew Mike Porman through a couple other things. Um, and it was one of those things where I think they lost, they lost their bass player. I wasn't the first person there, but then I got in with them and worked with them a bunch on the songs. Like, you know, we collectively worked on them is what I'm trying to say. And then we recorded them and I th- I think McTernan recorded that, but maybe Mike recorded that. God, it's been anyway, but yes, yes, I'm on the, I'm I'm the, I play on the union suit demo, which I think is the only thing that we ever did or did. And then I played some songs or some songs, some shows with them. Um, Six going on seven and union suit did a little run together where we went into Canada and played. And then I played some, shows with union suit independently like some basement shows some very like appropriate you know and then i think a a show with uh kiss it goodbye you know like a fun era of stuff because i'm i'm a i love that dead guy record but i that kiss it goodbye demo that came out after was was killer also
0: yeah and they they didn't they relocate to seattle i think once, once they started that band, I
1: think they did, and the drummer yeah. and the drummer played. Um, I think, it, I think that's the drummer from Rorschach, if I'm not mistaken. But if if not, it's it's somebody connected, you know, peripherally connected, and he played his drum kit facing like the wall, which is, which is so badass.
0: <laughs> Zayo used to do that too, and I, I I didn't know why, but it was just so cool. And then I, I talked to, uh, yeah, we actually had Scott Mellinger on the show, and I mentioned that. And he said he had the drums turned that way just so he could hear himself playing. And I never would have guessed it was for that reason. I was like, oh, I thought there was just trying to be different or something.
1: But there's a, there's a real cool aesthetic to that as well.
0: There really <laughs> so, is. So
1: there's some some like uh, external benefits visually. And uh, the guitar player from that sort of iconic Detroit um, punk band negative approach, he does the same thing. He faces the speaker and he never turns around during the whole set. And he's got sort of like a uh, helicopters-y, like wide stance and just rocks it out. Never, never acknowledges the band. Just starts and stops all the songs with everybody. Looks at the drummer, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so
0: six going on seven. You're together. You're touring. Talk about how things picked up. Talk about the band gaining steam.
1: Yeah. I mean, so – the like uh, the original set list or the the initial set list was primarily songs that I'd written that I just had reference points for that we played as a band and you know added our own. I mean, there's there's a distinct I'd played with Will Pryor, um, you know, like even if that was a short time, and I just had this real organic connection with him. He's a phenomenal. He's a phenomenal musical mind, uh, a sweetheart, and he's got a lot of musical touchstones that I really love as well. That I didn't know many people that had specifically, like, um, we're both big, like, you know, Susie and the Banshees, Echo and the Bunnyman, Depeche Mode. We were always fans of that stuff. And, you know, there's nobody really that I knew that wanted to play with me (laughs) that, that knew that stuff, you know, and even if those influences are not readily apparent, they're, they're huge influences and they're hugely things that, um, that I still love Jesus and Mary chain, all that stuff. And so he just plays a certain way that feels really right. I know where he's going in excess tears for fears. Those are all bands that I love. And, uh, so when he played on this stuff, like he just knows, he just knows. And then, you know, and as we were pushing ourselves to get more creative and and really do our own thing, we just had this idea that like, we're going to do this thing and whatever this thing is, whatever track we're on, we're going to push this and and go with it. And James was very much the same way. He incorporated a lot of the, you know, a lot of his own influences, but we just understood, you know, it was all about the song really more than anything, you know? So I, I felt like, you know, in every scene, there are people that are there, with stuff. And there are people that are really like sort of second, third, fourth, fifth generations of like bands that were better. And they, and they're making no effort to not, you know, they're about like the scene and not about songs and you can, and you can be about both, you know, anyway. So like, you know, we'd play these, you know, we'd work on these things and and we really would shed because we recorded, I was trying to figure this out. So before we recorded with Brian, we recorded two separate demos and then we recorded a demo, with Brian, I think, no, three separate demos. Anyway, effectively, there's like there's like somewhere between seven and nine unreleased six going on seven songs that were recorded in real, in real studios. And, and then we recorded, we were going to do, I don't remember, we recorded something with Brian. I think the last demo that we did was with Brian before we, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. I think the seven inch was the first thing we did with Brian, the method actor seven inch. Anyway, needless to say, we had a ton of songs, you know, ready to roll in various stages of disrepair and, uh, some that were really like locked in and solid. So when we got, when we did the seven inch, I don't remember what the connection was other than, um, I think I'm, you know, I, I, this is pre union suit. So I, we did the seven inch with Aaron, um, Hydra wanted to do it. And I was excited about that because I knew that we weren't, um, I knew we weren't converged and I knew we weren't cave in you know, but I felt like, oh, we sit with this stuff in that, like, you know, I, I like those guys. I like that stuff. And it, it was fun for me to have it not be identical. Like none of those bands really are the same.
0: Exactly. That was uh method actor. That was one of the standout records on Hydrahead because it wasn't heavy like everything else.
1: And it was also, and I, but I think it's, you know, like, I mean, th- this might be like my lack of uh, um, perspective, but I, I think it's remarkably heavy in in its own way. And it's not it's not heavy in the step on the distortion pedal heavy. It's heavy in a different way. And I think that's, that was the continuity that Aaron might've seen, you know, in all of that. And, you know, and it was also early in the stages of the label and it was a, you know, labels like that in the best way, like a discord or whatever, they're documenting what's happening at the time, you know, We were playing bills with all of these bands in, you know, in various forms and fashions. And and it makes a lot of sense in that regard. If you have context for the scene then, you know, so I think we're number 10, I think we're like Hydra head, number 10, um, like 10th release. And, uh, yeah, we did that. And then I don't remember what had happened, but our next thing we were going to do was we were going to, James was going to use a little money that he'd set aside to put out another seven inch. And we had this song Deadpan Cool that made it onto um, the first, uh, it's on Self Made Mess somewhere. And then uh, a couple other songs that we'd written. And we recorded those, and that was going to be the next thing. And then somehow the Walter, Sammy, uh, Matt Pincus um, connection, the, the Some Records connection happened. I don't remember again, like this is, you know, we're talking about like 1997 basically. So
0: yeah, that's like what, 20 something years ago.
1: Yes. Long enough ago that it was, I uh, can't
0: even count back that far.
1: So meet me either. My math is <laughs> never good though. That's why, that's why I'm not rich. Um, yeah, same. But uh, anyway, so that happened and, and I know that, you know, so, so we ended up talking to those guys. They were like, Oh, we want to put out a seven inch. And I remember saying like, Hey, you know, like we're ready to do a record. We've got like songs, you know, we don't want to do another, you know, cause at that point, we had done the recording of the songs that would potentially be like seven inch number two um, you know, f- for the band. Um, and we just were beyond that. We had, you know, we had plenty of stuff and we knew kind of what we were going to do. And I, you know, and so we ended up doing the record with some, and I, I know this is, this is only funny, like in retrospect, because I, I remember like in th- there were two, two, you know, so Hydrahead apparently I don't really know. Cause again, it's been years, but like one of the things I find funny is that there's one label in particular that claims to have tried to assign us. And I can tell you like definitively, like no way. Like I had somebody <laughs> give me a, and I'm not going to mention it because I don't, you know, and I had somebody give me a card and go like, Oh, you know, like, Hey, I work for, I work for da, 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 right? That's it. Like that's the, that's the entirety of the conversation. I remember the, co- I remember the show. I remember the person. I remember the card (laughs) Uh, downstairs, Middle East, and then who claimed later on, like, "Oh, we tried to sign that band." I was like, "You never tried to sign us." Like, you know, maybe him giving you the card was him trying to sign you, but he was like too shy
0: to actually ask you out.
1: No, no, definitely not too shy. But it was like (laughs) one of those things that, like in retrospect, the only reason that it it stands out to me is because I was very like considerate and thoughtful, and, and there weren't a million labels. Banging down the door to sign us, do you know what I mean? And so I, I remember like all of those things, and and then I, then I, I think I heard at some point that Aaron wanted to do a record with us, although I don't remember that. But again, it's been so long ago, you know what I mean? And and also we we didn't have a deal. It's not like we had like a seven inch in an album sort of thing, you know. Um, but I would have happily done it with either. Right? It was just like it's sort of like what happens at the time and where you're at, you know. And and some was this next step and you know like they so yeah so some signed us quote unquote you know um i'm sure there's a contract there somewhere and uh that was and that was that you know like the only the parameters for me was that i wanted to work with brian because i like brian as a person and as a roommate and a friend and i also felt like okay he knows the touchstones we're going to go for on this record we're probably not going to get a lot of time to do it we don't want to like start the process of and it's also kind of my personality like you know i enjoy those relationships and just kind of, you know, building on them. You know, I don't, not everything has to be this new, whatever. I would rather like a new batch of songs and like, ooh, let's try this on this record than like a whole new personnel.
0: Did Brian record Heartbreaks Got Backbeat?
1: He did. He recorded the 7-inch, Self-Made Mess, and Heartbreaks Got Backbeat. So, See, Brian has done everything. He's done a lot of stuff. Yeah. A lot of
0: stuff. Yeah, I I discovered 6 going on 7 more recently. And I th- I think Heartbreak Scott Backbeat is my favorite of everything I've heard. I really like what's going on there. How did six going on seven fit into the scene and everything that was going on at the time? I mean, at that time I had just gotten into things. I was an 18 year old kid and I only listened to like really moshy stuff or really poppy stuff. So sure. I was, sure. I was listening to saves the day and newfound glory. And then like, Poison the well and Dillinger escape plan. So it was sure, it was sure. one extreme or another. How right. how did you guys fit into everything going on at the time?
1: I mean, uh, you know, I don't know. Like, I, there's there's no way for me to say this without sounding like an asshole. So I'll so I'll go out on that limb and I'll and I'll say that I think that I was, I think that I was drawing from a wider wider influences at that point, and I think I was just I, I just like was in, you know in terms of six and seven I just wanted to write. I just wanted to write good songs. I was less worried about like what everybody was sounding like or listening to or whatever, you know. And for sure, for sure I was listening to plenty of that sort of stuff, but if it was like the hot thing to listen to, my instincts are kind of like steering away from that. Like I don't want yeah. I don't want that to be an influence for me. Like I want, you know, like so classic you know whoever could be cons- construed as like a classic songwriter i guess for for lack of a better description and or stuff that's like outside the scope of what's expected so you're you're like ahead of the curve in a way because i don't know that i am all i was all i was saying or all i was getting at really was like for me there was a real conscious thing to go like i really want this to be our thing whatever we're coming up with. So there was a ton of us just rehearsing. I mean we were hurt, we we played in our practice space for fun all the time. And we were, you know, and I'm I'm neurotic as I'll get out. I'm sure those guys can, you know, sign off on that, you know, at the time, but I was pushing us constantly to like be better than we were. Let's try this. Let's try this, you know. And those guys were all great good enough plenty good and were showing me stuff all the time. So there was a like a real visceral joy in us just playing together and fucking getting after it and going and going, you know, and doing stuff. And so I, I, I feel like, you know, wherever we sat on the bill, like my, you know, my goal was like, I want to be great on stage. Like I want to like, you know, based on the songs, but also performing said songs, you know what I mean? And so I was real against covers unless I felt like, We can do this as our own. Like this is going to sound like us, you know, like people aren't going to realize that's this song until fucking two minutes in, you know, and that's like, that was so, so identity. And, and I, I think the, you know, the, the irony of that or whatever is, is you become, you know, you become some bands favorite bands and you never really permeate and get, you never become like the ubiquitous band. that's like, you know, you're the perennial opener for for some of these bigger bands that i felt like oh like i think we have more of a voice than this band but this band certainly fits into this time and what's popular and what have you you know having said that i i was we had a lot of great experiences with a lot of bands that did really well that i think had a lot to say you know what i mean that i that i really enjoyed
0: yeah and that that's the thing when i listen to six going on seven i love it everything that you're telling me I, I can hear coming through because it doesn't sound like everything else. When I listen to it now, I like it better than the other stuff that I was listening to back in the day. However, I guess that's just the way popular music works in any scene. Like One band really hits and then a lot of people are doing something similar to that and that's what everybody's chasing. So it's like, you can do that or you
1: can not do that. So you get like you were saying, so you get like your saves the day and then you get 17 versions of saves the day that are not as good. (laughs)
0: Yeah, when I was 17 years old, I really got into saves the day and I would walk into a record store and say, what bands sound like saves the day. That's just, that's where your mind is at at 17 years old. Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
1: And that's the same thing, you know, with all that stuff. Yeah. You know, like you're, you know, I mean, the same thing, you, you find popular bands that you like, and then you also go like, Oh, who's in the liner notes that this band likes? Cause I like, you know, I want to find out who they like or who, you know, who they're thanking or whatever, you know? And sometimes you love those bands and sometimes you don't, but that's your, that's your springboard for a lot of that stuff for sure.
0: So let's talk about where the band went. We released America can't or won't in two thousand one on Doghouse, yes?
1: Correct. Yes. We and that, that the whole trajectory there was kind of an odd thing, but like the the succinct version was I think we were we between so prior to recording um Heartbreaks Got Backbeat, we were heavily courted by one major label. And then there were a couple others that were interested, but one in particular was really trying to sign the band. And I had like this lawyer calling me, going like, "Hey, I want to be your lawyer," who who had a convenient connection to the label, and all, all these like sort of weird things started happening. But I think that we, we so we ended up on Doghouse slash Big Wheel. I think is kind of how it was. I don't remember how it happened exactly. Maybe it was only Doghouse in the end, but. Prior to that, we'd, done, we'd gone down to DC and done more demos with Brian. Three songs, I think two of which are on AmeriCant. I love the versions of those ones we did. And it was one of those things where something something transpired with, I don't quite know the total dynamic, but I'll give you like my take on it because this is like the years on take, right? That um, James wanted to do something else. He wanted to be with a different, he wanted to, he was really pulling in the direction of like Jayhawks and like Americana stuff. Like, you know, these, whatever these, and and, you know, these roots rock, you know, Wilcoe sort of influences and was frustrated with what he perceived as where he wanted to be and who he could get to do it kind of, you know? And that was like kind of my concession. And it was really, really, really like not a concession I wanted to make outside of going like, okay, I love these guys. We spend hours in the practice space together. And even though, you know, even though I have this relationship with Brian or, or quite honestly, we have this relationship with Brian, you know what I mean? Like all of us, I got to be malleable enough to go like, okay, maybe we make a record over here. Maybe we do this, you know? So it was like new label, new record, new producer, like all in one. And so there's the pluses and minuses of those things. The pluses being. Um, we got this extra time in studio. I got to, I got to do some things on the record that I'd wanted to try just time wise, you know, specifically like, Oh, I've got the time to try this and to fuck around and to do this. Not anything that Brian couldn't do so much as just like the time to do it. You know what I mean? This bigger budget doing the stuff. We, we did that one with Tim O'Hare. I think he'd just done like all American rejects, which I was like, I don't, you know, I don't care about that band, but that band's doing well, whatever. Like, I don't, I don't know that band, you know, I don't, like or dislike that band. It's just, it, it is what it is. You know, it's like a mainstream pop punk band or whatever he done yeah. that record. And uh, he, he had done some other things that I had liked. I think he had done maybe some super drag, um, which I like those guys a lot. You know, as, as I like that guy a lot as a songwriter, again, I don't, we played a couple shows with them maybe, but I don't know them, but uh, yeah. So we, so we ended up with Tim O'Hara. We ended up at the studio called Ford Apache, you know, I got to, I got to use a Mellotron on a song that like David Bowie had used on something. It's some, just some cool shit, you know, like, and there was, there was like preamp gear or board gear that was, that had some peripheral connection to ACDC, all these, all these fun little things, you know,
0: I love that. Um, yeah,
1: But, you know, I, and I love all that lore and there's, and there's great, great lore with like the, you know, the stuff we did with Brian on the first record, like there's crazy stories about like where we were, what we did on. Self made mess. I, I don't want to skip that, but you know, but but you're asking about third record, and so that was like one of those times where it was a little bit like the batch of songs I had written more songs than we ended up tracking, and there were some democratic decisions about which songs went on that I was kind of like, okay, like you guys really like that one, like that we want to go with that one, and then it was a combination of that a little bit because because heartbreaks got backbeat for me it was a very linear it has a tone. It has a tone that goes through the whole thing. And if the first record is a, is kind of an angry record, the second record is a real like sad record. You know, it's got, it's a very, and it it was legitimately a sad record. Like all the songs seem to like make sense and be cohesive in that regard. Um, And then the third record is kind of a mix of Stuff, but it was also kind of like what we were doing at the time. It was a little, you know, even though it's recorded wildly different than the other two, it's really kind of a mix of the two in some, you know, like it's, it's really, it's closer to the second one in a lot of ways, but it was also the evolution and like, Oh, I want to kind of try like a Beatlesy song. This, you know, whatever to very, you know, various degrees of success. But I, I really attribute a lot of that to two things, the sort of me not sticking to my guns and going like, I don't want that song on the record. We're going to do this song, you know, like, I mean, and then also the production of it and like the sort of like too much time, too much time to like think and rethink guitar things and this and that. And and ultimately I do better with like having to make some like hard decisions. Like, okay, I like this vibe, vibe check, you know, like this, let's feels, this feels great. Let's like stick with it. Like we can get neurotic and, and hang out all day and try all these things. And theoretically they might work, but at some point, record is it's feeling you know it's it's visceral it's got to be like okay that's that's the one you know definitive right uh, so i think it was like a little wayward there and then on the personnel side or on the sort of internal side james was really struggling he's he was like three or four years older than than will and will's little will's like a couple years older than me and then james was a few years older than that anyway he had decided like this is you know I'm not sure if I want to do this because we were getting ready to do a bunch of tours and all this stuff. We'd been offered like a, like a weird run of shows with like the goo goo dolls, like just, you know, stuff that was like totally different level wow. level. And that was right before the band ended. We finished the show. We played our Boston show. And, and I clearly, I think in retrospect, he probably had this, you know, dialed in because we had tour to go after that. That was like a sort of like a midway stop maybe even an early stop. I think it was at the paradise. We played this show. It was the record release for American and James quit after that show. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like the Swan song we play in Boston. He's like, I'm going back to school, yada, yada. And then that was it. That was kind of it. He, uh, yeah. Like he said, you know, like I'll, I'll call you. And, uh, I haven't heard from him in, you know, however, since then you haven't heard from him since then. No, no, you want to I would love to, yeah. you know, like I, you know, like Will, Will, I was the best man at Will's wedding. Will and I knew each other prior to James, but there was no great falling out. There was no, the only thing that I can point to is there was tension from the McTernan situation because Brian was a f- personal friend of mine and James didn't really have that connection. You know, mm-hmm. it was more business with him. And I think that I felt like, Hey, you know, like this thing is good. Now we're starting to get some traction. Let's stick with this thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, Like that, like this is, and, but that was one thing. And then I think the other thing is James really wanted to go off and do this other thing. We had this live guitar player that we incorporated specifically live. And I had this sneaking suspicion that that guy was kind of like in it to play with James more to play than to play with the band a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, on some level. And then when they, when he quit, I was like, he's going to fucking start a band with that guy. I know it. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, But, you know, it's funny because I kind of had mentioned that in passing or maybe even like multiple times, kind of like, hey, you know, like, you want to start a band with him, don't you? And he'd really like, no, 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 like, no, no, I want to, you know, I'm in this, I want to be in this, whatever. Um, It's
0: like sneaking around secret girlfriends and stuff. It was
1: absolutely, it was absolutely, (laughs) it was like the secret band girlfriend. And so, so karmically, I feel like the fact that that didn't uh, do anything is probably, you know, like the way it would have been for any of us.
0: Well, first, let me ask this. I mean, how did you feel after that? I mean, you have these big potential tours coming up and everything. Were you heartbroken? Did you want to try to hold it together with other people? I mean, where were you at with the whole thing?
1: So I, I felt this – I felt, you know, uh, multiple things. Obviously, like, for sure, I feel like I had a lot less in my life at that point than James and Will in terms of – um just in terms of their, their focus and their priorities, they probably were more balanced, quite frankly, and, and probably still are. And that's why I've, that's why, that's why I'm in, you know, the land of, um, Gordon seafood making records still, you know? <laughs> um, but having said that, I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to conflate that with them being committed. It's not that it's just like, I was all in, in so many ways. Like this is this, you know, it was, it was defining to me. Like I don't, and it still is in a lot of ways. Like I, this, this means everything to me. I have, I'm, I'm competitive in the way that I'm like dismissive of people that are like, you know, like, Oh yeah. You know, like I I used to play in a bit. You're like, Oh yeah. I used to play in a band and trying to kind of like, go you know, like, Oh, I played music too. I always want to be like, no, you know, not the, not the same. (laughs) Yeah Yeah. (laughs) Not the same. You know, you weren't, you weren't like, Deep in your thirties, like sleeping on, you know, the floor with your jacket over you because you crashed at somebody's house so you could, you know, have money to get to the neck. You know what I mean? Like, there's, there's right. There, there, those are not the same parallels, you know. And and I know a lot of my peers that had those same experiences, so I'm not put, I'm not singling myself out from that. I'm just, but I'm giving context, I guess, you know. And so the band ends. And I was really like, I didn't really know because I loved those guys as people. And I loved playing with them. And they, they all have such unique voices that I feel like it was like a police, like, or any band where, you know, there's no replaceable member. And I still feel like that. I remember that it was proposed that we get another guitar player and carry on. And I was like, I, no, like I can't. And that was a doghouse thing. Um They really, you know, cause they had money invested. They wanted us to do this stuff. And I just – I didn't see a path where that made any sense to me because there was so much creative cyclical stuff going on between the three of us that was just – that felt we'd nurtured it, we put the work in, and that to me signaled, I-, I guess the band is done. Do you know what I mean? It was just like there there was no I, – I saw a path forward doing solo stuff. I saw a path forward like doing another band in which I could have played with Will. Or, you know, it, and, or James, like, you know, given any circumstance, but James was the one that quit, you know? So, yeah. So that's just kind of where I was at. And then I, uh, so I, I had, uh, my girlfriend at the time, I, I, uh, just recorded these, you know, sad sack fucking songs on, <laughs> on her four track <laughs> and just like these, you know, I was just like working through these like awful ideas. It's like, I unlearned how to write songs just because I was so symbiotic with those guys and, um we just were kind of like firing on all cylinders you know
0: you have to start over in a way like i used to do this podcast with a co-host and he left to be able to commit more time to his family and i i felt like i had to start completely over
1: yeah yeah for and sure and learn
0: how to learn how to be a solo artist so to speak
1: absolutely and 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 frankly i you know i i kind of felt like the motivation the motivation was there like i knew like i had the drive to do it but because it wasn't coming at the pace that made sense to me, it was like, I was consistently frustrated, you know, like I was kind of like finding my voice again in the context of like, Oh, you know, like doing this and this. And so I ended up demoing a bunch of those things. I, I, I wish I had, <laughs> I wish I still had that stuff. It's probably on a cassette somewhere, but uh so that was, that was that. And then before so i moved to um new york after that because i was friends with uh, alan cage who's a drummer of quicksand and he was like uh he was in burn and 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 other stuff too and seaweed for a while he was a friend of mine and he had an apartment that opened up in harlem and i was like oh you know he's like 400 bucks a month you want it like i was like oh shit you know like yeah for sure so i took it sight unseen um, Cause I'd never been there, you know, I I'd been to New York, but I'd never been been to his apartment and I, and I sort of, uh, the, the back and forth nature of the relationship I was in, we broke up or, you know, whatever, you know, we were, we were off and off, off off again, on again, that sort of thing. And I moved to New York and, uh, moved in with Alan and this guy, John, he had two roommates that left at the same time. And my, my uh, roommate, John, um, was one room. I got the other room and Alan lived in the room he'd always been in. And so that was that. And I was just sort of like, I was working at, um, as a photo retoucher for like a stock photography agency in Manhattan. And uh, I was uh, writing music and trying to kind of get different stuff going. I, I played a lot with Alan. We would just, you know, and we'd argue back and forth about like great songs and just like <laughs> how, you know, like he had a drum kit that he would play, like kind of muted in the, in the, we were on the third floor. Uh, a walk up of this apartment in Harlem on 136th and Lenox. So you're in Brooklyn. So I'm sure you've got some context for like Manhattan and all of the layout. So we were right, right across from uh, Harlem hospital and that's the apartment I lived in with Alan. And then in doing all that stuff and finding out all that stuff, um, kind of writing and, you know, I had a friend Arun who was living in Detroit at the time who was like, Hey, like, you know, who he was going to Berkeley for, he went to Berkeley for a while and he was a fan of six, going seven. And that's kind of how I met him. But I always knew him to be like a kid playing guitar in his room a lot and not playing live very much. In fact, hardly playing live at that point, you know, like really just sort of woodshedding and doing his thing. But it was clear that like, that's what he was going to be doing. Like, you know what I mean? Like I, I saw the, I saw the parallels and I saw his like drive to do this thing, you know? And he'd been playing a little bit um, with this guy, Rodrigo. And so I moved to Detroit from New York to play with Rodrigo and Arun and this guy named um, Brett Fratangelo, whose dad was in uh, Parliament Funkadelic. And his dad, I I think his dad plays with Kid Rock now, maybe. (laughs) I'm not exactly sure. But he's like a Detroit staple guy, like a drummer, uh, whatever. And um, Brett was his son, phenomenal drummer total piece of work like you know like interesting character like a character in in the way that all great books have them and uh so aruna rodrigo and i wrote these songs recorded a few of them up in canada because that's a good that's a good like studio spot for like a lot of detroit people you know at the time and uh this band was pale throats was the name of the band and we were really heading towards this sort of i was getting a lot of like my Britpop pop influences satiated with this this thing Uh, We recorded one song came out on one compilation in Massachusetts, but um, Rodrigo's played with a bunch of different people as is Arun. Arun, they both play in saves the day and have for a long time, but they were playing in different things. And Arun now, now plays with um, Craig Finn from a whole study. When Craig Finn goes out solo, Arun's like the guitar player in that band. And he also does like cool shit. Like he, he wrote or co wrote the theme song for this, uh, middlemost post, which is this, uh, cartoon network show that's, um, by the creator of SpongeBob. So I played with those guys for a while, didn't last long, moved back to Boston, got asked to play in a few things that didn't happen. Like I got asked to play, you know, I, I auditioned for one thing and I, uh, didn't get it. And then I got an audition for another thing and it didn't happen because the bass player, who broke his thumb found a cast that fit that he could go on tour and do that sort of thing and so so i learned all these songs and then didn't get it and then um when six going on seven was around we we made friends with some of the Bostones. they liked our band and they had us play with them a couple different times and i was working this is 2003 four somewhere in there and um I was working at this Newberry comics related clothing store called Hoot Nanny that existed for a few years. And I helped buy some of like the, I was really into like Merck and Lonsdale and all the Brit pop sort of clothing, Fred Perry, you know, all those, all those things aesthetically. So, so I had been brought in to sort of help out with some of that stuff. And, you know, I cashiered and just kind of did whatever. It was just like a, you know, one, one of the million jobs I've had. And in that process, um, Somebody that was friends with Nate from the Boston's um, told him that I wasn't playing in something, or I don't remember that I was back in town. He came into Hootenanny and uh, asked me if I wanted to audition for the New York Dolls. Oh wow! And uh, I was like, you know, you know, of course, you know, like yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Like, and he was talking to, I guess their man. He worked for, I think it was called Ten Pin Management, maybe at the time. And uh, Arthur Killer Kane had just passed away. And they, they were going to continue on with a new bass player. And so I got the opportunity to be on that list with they – had, they had like three or four people in New York they were going to try out first. And then I was like in the sort of next tier or next <laughs> – next holding pattern or group or what, ha- you know? Yeah. And uh, so I fucking on my lunch break, I ran up to Newberry comics. Cause it's literally the same building in the garage, this building in uh, Harvard square. And I bought <laughs> New York dolls, greatest hits. I was like, I'm going to take this home. I listened to it the rest of my shift. And then I was like, I'm going to take this home and I'm going to learn these songs and I'm going to kill it. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be in the New York dolls and, uh, you know, or I'm going to at least like kill the audition. And, uh, I learned, I started listening to all these songs and I don't know how well, you know, the New York Dolls stuff, but there's a lot of stuff that sounds the same. (laughs) There's a, they've got like a couple hits and then a lot of songs that are like variations on the hit. Oh (laughs) shit. These songs all sound the same. And I was like, so I nailed the hits and then I was like, ah, pulling my hair out, trying to figure out like what I was going to do, you know, and then I don't remember how long transpired enough time that like I was had time to like rehearse the stuff for a bit, you know, like let's say a week or less than a week. And they ended up taking, I think it was like Pat Benatar's or Joan Jett's like guitar player was going to play bass in the band or something like that. Somebody they knew from the scene. So I never even got the chance to do it, but, but I have, I I still have the thing and I, and I, I got close. I got close.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It it sounds like, you go where the music takes you, and I like that. You know, you move to New York City, you move to Detroit. You're playing with different people. You're trying different things, and I think I think that's what you have to do as a musician. I mean, you have to go where the opportunities are, and and the more people you're playing with, the more experience you're getting. And so, yeah, you also started a band with ex members of Snapcase when they were on a hiatus. Tell us that story.
1: After that, Mike Porman. I think it was was like oh yeah like the guys in Snapcase are doing this thing and they're looking for a singer, and I was like oh you know like I, I, I like Snapcase you know it's like quick sandy a little bit and you know it's it, it's got some things that I that I recognize you know but it's also a little different and it's got you know it's upstate New York it's got its own identity and um I liked how locked in it was and how specific you know. Right. And so uh I got these demos. I think the band at the time was called ourselves or, or our, some, um the demo that I have anyway, and listen to the songs. And I was like, fuck, this stuff is really good, but I, there are better singers for this stuff. Like there are other people that will do this better. I know what this is. I've, I've heard this before and I know I can't do it. You know, like I can't, or if I do, it's going to sound funky. You know what I mean? It's going to make like a weird thing. So I think I sang over one of the songs anyway and sent it back and they called me to, to do it, to come join. So I moved to Buffalo. (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, And I moved. So you get around a lot, huh? Yeah. I mean like, like the beach boys, but less lucrative. Yeah. So I I ended up moving to to, uh, Buffalo to do this thing. And I think early on, like we'd had a conversation prior and I, I think like sort of my, my one qualifier was like, I really want to write with you guys. I want, like, let's, let's do, let's start from scratch and do new stuff, you know? Cause I think we can do, let's like see where we go with that. Cause I, I wanted to, to at least entertain that idea. Cause I didn't want to do, like, I'd done this thing with the, the thing that was, that forgive, forget was with Brian was post Milltown. I sang over demos they had and like we were going to do a new band. You know, and it was, but it was very like, you know, the reason that Forget Forget ended up being like a better thing, a better fit, like me, Brian and Sammy was that like it was kind of a mix of the two of us. Whereas that other thing, you know, um, was too much like a new guy singing over Milltown songs, you know, and same, same with the ourselves stuff or like the, you know, the Snapcase. It was like it wasn't Snapcase, but it was so, it was so similar that, um, it was like a new guy singing over Snapcase songs, you know. And I was like, well, uh, so
0: it was. It wasn't too different.
1: It was probably probably to other people's ears. It was to me. I was like, I hear so much of this in this, and I know that they they can write songs. You know, like I know that there's songwriting there. I think that they need to be with you know, like like for me to if they want if they like what they're hearing from me, like we need to get like somewhere in the middle, closer yeah. to stuff. Yeah. So we wrote stuff and we had a hell of a time. Like we, we just, it was, it was a lot of fun and it was, uh we got there quick. So we did, um, we ended up getting multiple songs, but we had these three songs that we had dialed in, got a little small record person that wanted to put out like a, like an EP or a seven inch or whatever. It turned out being that three song EP. Um, we went to Boston and recorded with my friend, um, Adam Taylor, who I'm recording with now. And so um Dustin, um the bass player of like that was in threadbare and is in snapcase and frank who's in snapcase and ben who was the current snapcase drummer um and played on maybe um or who is the current current at the time let me clarify that current at the time drummer not the original drummer <sighs> so dustin frank and ben and i went to um Boston and recorded this thing with uh, Adam and it was, it was a lot of fun and we were really happy with it. And then we, then it got put out and we played some shows. We played with this band. uh, We are scientists. It was kind of like a, you know, a current band at the time. And we played with a lot of like, we played multiple shows in and around sort of like Buffalo area. And we ended up playing, uh, we played a show in New York, Um, played some other shows too. I don't remember like a handful of shows. And then I was going to um, move back to Portland because of a lot of things. And then, um, when I was going to, when I was going to move back to Portland, we had a lot of, uh, you know, I was, I was coming back and I, you know, like ready to fly back and do all, you know, kind of our writing sessions, recording and everything. Cause we had gotten interest from multiple labels. We got an interest from management. We'd gotten a booker. Almost immediately, who is going to put us on tour for forever? Basically, you know, like that was going to be the thing. And then Frank, the guitar player, this is there's there's a constant of the guitar players um, decided kind of similarly to James that like uh, I got to go, like I I don't, I don't know if I can do this all over again, like starting all over again. You know, which is which is a very fair sentiment in retrospect, because um, it, it's a it's a life changing thing in some ways. You know, like even though Snapcase had. had success touring they're they're kind of a known quantity they knew who they could go out with what made sense it wasn't like starting over you know um for them like they had this thing they could play shows you know so even though the Snapcase was on hiatus or broken up at the time or whatever they you know they they had their thing that they did they knew where they what their good markets were where they weren't you know what was worth their time sort of and me i've always been a little more like I got a sleeping bag and, you know, like, you know, naively so maybe, you know, but also like you kind of need a little bit of that to go for it, you know? Yeah. You need a little bit of like the,
0: the, you almost have to approach it. Like there's no other choice and there isn't for many folks who do it.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, and, and so we had this opportunity to do this stuff. And so I was on the West coast and, and Frank kind of had a, a freak out and was like, I got to go back to work at the Apple store. And that was literally what it was. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know which i i don't know again in retrospect to me is so funny you know at the time it's like oh that's that's sensible you know and then in retrospect it's like you know i don't know it's just funny so that was that was that um and uh i think there was dustin and ben wanted to continue on for a little bit potentially with a different guitar player but it was again it was just like a lot of a lot of work you know, it's a lot of work to like do that. And and at some point, it was just like, maybe we just, you know, maybe this is just it for this thing. And maybe you and I can write some stuff together down the line. You know what I mean?
0: So now we have Attempt Survivors. Josh, before you jump into that, folks, Educated Hips is the EP. It's going to be released on Iodine Recordings in June. So make sure to pick that up. And there's a single out now, Educated Hips, that's streaming everywhere. So let's talk about how this came together.
1: Yeah, it, um it was one of those things where so Adam Marino and I like before I was doing solo stuff when I was in 697 uh he was on he was in a band called Aerotype 11 um that was on the same label and uh anyway Aerotype 11 had uh we were label mates we we were friends we were both bass players you know we we kept in touch over the years when I was doing solo stuff and he had uh gotten married had kids started a business was had been writing stuff off and on, and I think for quite a while off and on and um had done bands post era type eleven also instruction and Godfire's man and you know a bunch of stuff, but then he kind of quit music for lack of a better description, you know he just was like that i'm I'm done with that, and I'm just gonna write songs in my house and you know raise my kids, et cetera et cetera so he and focus on my business so he was he was busy with a whole bunch of other stuff, and at some point it came to pass that he was working on this stuff. And they were considering different singers. And just like as a friend, I was like, oh, you know, shit, like I'll, I'll sing on it. Like, you know, like, let me hear it. Like, give me a shot. You know, let me see what we what we got, what we're working with, you know. And uh, he was just playing primarily with this. Um, well, he was playing with all of the people that ended up in the EP, actually. But it, it started out, I believe, with him and Kyle Stevenson, the drummer. And I think that's how they started stuff. And then he incorporated his friend Matt from um new york and his friend eric from chicago through different bands and they all played in different bands and um kyle and matt had played together eric had never played with any of those guys but he was also they're all they're all uh they all radiate from adam they're all friends of adam it's you know it's six degrees of adam yeah and and i heard these songs and again like there were certain ones that i was like somebody else can do this better this is like two this is too metal for me. Like I I appreciate it. It's really cool. It's not my thing, you know, or it sounds too much like handsome or like, you know, like I'd have reference points that I was like, I get the, it's too much of an era for me. Let's try this or whatever, you know? And we just kind of like hashed it out. We did a lot of uh, FaceTime stuff. I went down to San Diego and then we go from San Diego to LA after Adam and I had played a bunch and played a bunch with Kyle. And we got to the point where we're like, okay, here are the two songs that make sense for this seven inch. And we're going to go record them and Adam booked time with uh, Toshi Kasai, who's, uh, the Melvins sort of house engineer. And, uh, we went up to Burbank (laughs) to, uh, to record at Toshi's studio and uh, recorded educated hips and the B side, follow me chaos for this uh, EP that's coming out. So that was like the sort of first thing that we did. And, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was like, I, you know, we tracked most of the stuff there. And then we tracked the, the bass was tracked remotely by Eric Ebert, who plays in this band, the life and times, which is a sort of side project or, or another project of Alan Epley from Shiner.
0: Yeah. I love that band.
1: And then, yeah, Eric's great. And then, uh, Matt had played in this band, the big collapse, which was like a post shift band with Kyle on the West coast or maybe East coast, West coast. And then he also played in this band uh, versus antelope with Chris Daly. So Matt and Matt's one of, uh, one of um, Adam's friends and I've never met Matt. I've never been in the same room as Matt and <laughs> we're getting ready to go record a record, <laughs> but it, that's, it, I, that's the greatest thing. Like I, it's, uh, I'm super excited about all those guys. So yeah.
0: Yeah. I love what I hear too. I've heard the single. I love that. Think Jawbox. think life and times, think shiner in, in that pocket. I really like that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I do too. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, um, kind of discord in as like a as a general um as a general sort of like umbrella thing there's a lot of stuff that I like about that scene and that stuff I feel like these to me feel like very early songs in the context of where we pushed and where we're at now but songs that I still I'm very proud of them i I like them still but I mean they feel like we wanted to get something down and out with some you know with some sort of uh momentum we just kind of felt like you know let's not like labor over the perfect you know what i mean like there's these things to work with this one and this one you know like let's work on these two let's record them let's get them out because for me doing music now for so long part of it for me is like the process of like getting it done and getting it out like i i, I just struggle with people that are like you know i've been writing this record for seven years in my house you know like i've had this band ba- we've never done you know what i mean yeah <laughs> for me i'm just like you gotta like you, you Shit, or get off the pot. Like, you gotta do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so part of the process also is like, you, you find your footing in doing that with those people, you know, and doing that stuff. And so, uh, yeah. So we've got the seven inch coming out. I'm super excited. I'm super excited to, uh, to play shows and support it and also to, to make a record and give people like a wider sense of what we can do or where we're headed. So what is the plan? Where is it headed? Uh, hopefully it's headed for, uh, a batch of good songs for a first record that's my number one priority and i think it's adam's as well and and kyle's as well kyle does helmet otherwise and so he does you know that's sort of like either really busy or not at all busy depending on Mm -hmm. what you know time they're they're in and then matt um does a bunch of other stuff outside of music but has a real unique take on things i really like his influences and um they're they're touchstones that i understand and they're also ones that are totally you know, more on like the Zappa, Zappa meets Jane's Addiction, you know, like sort of wheelhouse, which I really love because he melodically, we we have some nice interplay going, but it's not what I come up with on my own. It's it's, it's great. You know, like it's a true collaborative thing, which I love.
0: Yeah. It sounds like you get involved and you want to be involved with piecing it together and the songwriting process, which I think is great because I don't know. If I'm working by myself, I I might just write a song that just sounds like something else or maybe that song might reach new heights if I'm working with other people rather than just working with myself. In recent times, I've been working with a band and someone will be like, well, let's try this. And we, we add a completely different part or just the collaborative
1: nature of things can really make it better. For sure. And, and I think, you know, like having done solo stuff for so long, I know what I do, like I know what I do well in the con- like the kinds of songs that fit me doing stuff by myself. And then I also know like I think to some degree and, and I'm and I'm constantly learning and trying to learn and get better. And also, but like what I do well in the context of various like configurations. Like, oh, I see what they're doing here, like I, I know where this is headed, we can do this, we can, you know, and, and uh, just you know, I, I have no um, I have collective ego you know what I mean? Like I have like uh, the collective ego, like I, I, uh, of the band, but it's, but for me, and I want to, and I want to do my parts as well as I can. I don't want to like phone anything in, you know, like I'm working. One of the things is Adam is, you know, bugging me for like, put vocals down on this song. And I'm like, I got vocals, but I got 17 verses. We only need three. So give me some time. I'm about to do the solo stuff. As soon as I'm done, I, I have to be like I'm die, you know. I'm all in. I have to be in that. I have to finish it. I have to put my best stuff out there, and then I'm going to put my best stuff out there all over again for this next batch of things as we work on refining all these things. I need that that separation because I don't want them to. I mean, it's all the same thing. Like you know, it's all um, we're trying to write the best songs we can.
0: So you can't be like recording the solo album and then jump over and do an attempt survivor song and then jump back. It's got to be like your energy goes into one project and then the next project
1: i can but i think that i'm more successful if i'm hyper focused on the task at hand because i know the level of playing that you know like that kyle has and matt has and adam has or like you know where the standard they hold themselves to to, and, and we're and there's continuity there we're all there it matters greatly to me you know and um so I, I want to be done. I want to put all my energy into these songs that I've written for this EP. Cause I'm really in love with some of this stuff and I want to get it out there. And I did a, I did a cover of a song that I'm keeping under wraps that I'm super excited for people to hear because it's a local band from the era I was in and um, I've been sitting on it forever and we finally did it and I'm fucking super stoked <laughs> and I can't wait for that to come out. And then, and then this EP, and then I've got like this sort of eight week break or a little less to work on all these ideas that we have been working on now for a year with the attempt survivors stuff, but really hyper-focus on them and go like, I can do better than that. Okay, that's cool. That's a keeper. Next. Just kind of like work on, you know, meta, just break it all down and then get ready to go to Baltimore and record, you know, in July.
0: So we were talking earlier, you mentioned that there was some studio lore with Brian McTernan while you were recording Self-Made Mess.
1: Oh yeah, man. There's, you know, with all the records, there's some like little funny thing, but that, and I've told the story before, but this one in particular is, is funny to me just based on, you know, I grew up in North Portland and kind of, as I was discovering, you know, the Depeche modes of the world and, and Prince and all that sort of stuff. I also, it's a very, it's very much like that neighborhood historically was very much like a, for lack of a better term, sort of like white trash, neighborhood and area of Portland, a lot of metal, <laughs> a lot of muscle cars, <laughs> a lot of yeah. like dudes that liked hockey and and looked like they were going to beat me up and probably would have, you know? <laughs> um, anyway, so it's funny that like in all that, somehow, uh, you know, we got signed to some, we're going to go make this record. And there's some like management share thing, you know, like the labels are always hustling like, oh, we've well, got this connection here. We've got this, you know, and it's no different on an indie. It's all, you know, it's all who, you know, and like what, you know, and somehow Skid Row and I think Quicksand shared management and, <laughs> and Walter was like, oh yeah, you know, like Dave Sabo's got a studio in Jersey and he, you know, he'll let us use it for X amount of dollars. And, you know, it was like within our, our no budget kind of, you know? Yeah. So we went and recorded self-made mess at Dave, the snake Sabo from Skid Row's house basically because <laughs> his basement. And, uh, you enter through the garage and the garage is just like full of like gear and snares and amps and, you know, guitars and what have you. And then you kind of make your way in and there's like a, you know, the, tr- the tracking room and a little hallway. And then there's the door up to his house where you're never supposed to go up there. And then there's like the, you know, the live, live stuff in the, in the back room that was like the, uh, loungy area. And so we recorded self-made mess in a really short amount of time. And like the the tape machine kept breaking and all this shit happened. But, Like maybe a day we were told like, you know, like Dave lives up here. Don't go up the store. you know, like, don't go upstairs, like stay downstairs. You know, we stayed in the studio. There's a bathroom, there's a shower, you know, like we did all that stuff. I slept actually literally under the control board, under the, (laughs) uh, under the mix, you know, the mixing board in a sleeping bag. And then I think some of those guys slept in the other room. We we, we slept all over the studio, like maybe a day or two into the tracking, probably the second day or whatever. He kind of came down and was bobbing his head. He's like, Hey, I'm Dave. And you know, like. And then befriended James and Will, uh, took him out to play pool in Jersey while I was tracking vocals, took us (laughs) upstairs to see all his like gold records from, you know, Pantera and all this other shit. And, uh, it was just funny because, you know, growing up, it's like, of course I know who Skid Row is, you know, that's like a really funny connection. And he had great stories, told us some wild, wild stories, you know, from like the height of the band, just, just like, you know, dirt level stuff. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Referencing the Motley Crue book, you know, just like crazy, crazy stuff that you're like, wow, you know, like, wow, what a, what a surreal life, you know, but uh, <laughs> he had uh, above his like grand piano in his house, he had uh, the slave to the grind cover. If you know what that cover is, um, it's like this sort of painting, like fine art painting. He had that painting like above his piano It's just like weird little stuff, but it like mostly it was just like a cool cool thing that the snare that's on self-made mess. If I'm not confusing this, I'm pretty sure it's a black beauty snare. And I think it was the snare that was on November rain that they had. Bought, oh, they had. Oh yeah. Yeah. That they had bought from uh Matt Sorum anyway, like wow. cool shit like that, you know? And then like, I lost my voice cause the tape machine kept breaking and Brian was like, shit dude. Like we've got like a day and a half to, to track vocals for like nine songs or eight songs left. You know what I mean? So I totally blew out my voice doing that and in doing so. Dave was like, "Hey man, like Sebastian Box never coming back. Like you can use any of his stuff. Here's his case. So, <laughs> so I, I used this little throat spray called Performer's Secret that was Sebastian Box, that, you know, to, to make it through the self-made mess sessions. It just like you know, like little funny things like that. <laughs> Anecdote. It's amazing, like
0: the just how everything comes together. Different generations of bands, different scenes, all
1: that stuff. Dude, it's so it's such a you know like music and the longer." I've lived and the more I've been in like, you know, music and connect. it's connected, you know, the peripheral connection to entertainment and all these things, you know, I've got all these friends now that are doing these things all over and it's just so funny and surreal and enjoyable for me, you know, but still for me, man, you know, like all I want to do is write songs that I can have people that I respect go like, man, I, I really like that song.
0: Absolutely. So let's recap. Here's what we want to do, folks. Number one, if you haven't heard six going on seven,
1: you have to. I mean, it's a great band, right, Josh? I I'm very proud of uh I'm very proud of my time with that band and specifically the era you mentioned, like self made mess era is uh or excuse me uh heartbreaks got backbeat era is like my favorite. I feel like it was the most cohesive record, but those records are very very close to being reissued. So all the stuff that you cannot find now because it's been out of print for a long time. And the Spotify sort of catalog of said records, along with demos and some other cool stuff, are we're around the corner from that happening? I think in 2022.
0: Oh, that's exciting! I'm looking forward to that. You have solo albums?
1: Yeah, I've got solo records. I've got uh, I have uh, four solo records, and I'm just about to. I'm going to release a single, um, a a cover. I did a cover of Purple Rain for this um, for this cool benefit thing that that is yet to come out but it's a it's a cool cause and then i've got um this cover that i'm recording that is potentially set to be a b-side of a seven inch but for sure will be digital and then i've got an ep coming out after it and then uh then we go in and make the attempt survivors record kind of like right around when the iodine seven inch comes out just to kind of keep the ball rolling
0: excellent so yeah let's check out the solo records Let's check out Educated Hips. That EP is coming out on Iodine Recordings in June. Absolutely, and then we have an LP to look forward to as well. Yes, <laughs> excellent. Well, I'm excited, and folks, I hope all of you are too. And Josh, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to come on the show tonight. You know, you've done so much, and there's more coming, and I'm really looking forward to
1: it. It was great talking to you. So, thank you. Likewise, man. It was it was a pleasure. I I really appreciate your time, and hopefully. Uh, I had a lot of fun talking.
0: There you have it, folks. Josh English. Really happy that I got to talk to Josh. That was an excellent conversation. I can't wait to hear more from Attempt Survivors. I love the two singles they have out now, Educated Hips and Follow Me Chaos. I'll have those on our playlist, our Spotify 2022 playlist. So check that out if you haven't heard it yet. And I mean, the guy has just done so much. Six going on seven, excellent band. Can't wait for those reissues. The amount of traveling that he's done all over the country, uh, pursuing various different bands and musical projects. And you know, I've talked about this with various musicians. That's what you got to do, really. If you're in this, if this is what you do, and if you really love it, you just pick up and you go. He moved to Detroit, he moved to Buffalo, he moved to New York City, all over the place and I really respect that, you know. Whenever I talk to a musician and they can just pick up like that and go with no fear, I think that's incredible. Because that I could never do it. I could just never do it. So props to you Josh. He's done a lot, he's doing a lot and it was wonderful to talk to him. Thank you so much Josh. All right folks, let's check in. How are we doing? It's been a very steamy weekend here in New York City. It is 4th of July weekend, so happy 4th to anybody who celebrates. It's been hot. It's been humid. I hate air conditioning, and I've had to use it several times this weekend. I just don't like it. I don't like It's loud. I can't hear what I'm watching. I turn on the air. It gets too cold. I turn off the air. It gets too hot. I turn the air back on. I hate it. It's a never-ending uncomfortable cycle of madness. And I like to have the window open. I like to have the window open all day and fresh air blowing in. But uh, this unbelievably hot, humid weather does not allow for that. But listen, on the more positive note, it's been a beautiful weekend. I've done a lot of fun stuff. I was hanging out in Tompkins Square Park in New York City Saturday. And for those who live here or those who have been there, you know, it's always a scene there. And it was great. I was with my friend Robert. We're sitting there talking to all the various New York City characters that walk by and feeding squirrels and watching drug deals go down left and right. Guys riding by on bikes, offering weed for sale. It's a real scene down there. It's a real scene and I love it. Today is Sunday as I record this. I went and visited my parents. I haven't seen them since Christmas. They were really happy to see me. So we grilled, we hung out, we ate. I watched uh, Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, which were on TV. They bring out all the hits for these holidays on cable, so that was nice. It was great to see them. And now I'm back home recording this podcast, and I'm feeling good. Nice weather, good times, really don't have any complaints. I mean, I hope everybody out there has had a great weekend and is doing well. I'm doing great here, and that's it. That's it. We've got a lot more. Exciting stuff coming up. Guests, you wouldn't believe. If I read you our guest list right now, you wouldn't believe it. You would unsubscribe from the podcast because you would think I was lying. It's that good. I can't wait to bring you all of these episodes. I can't wait to bring you additional content. Speaking of, as you listen to this, folks, I will be doing a live stream on Twitch. If you have Twitch, follow me at the new scene and come drop in. I'm going to be playing Doom 3, sort of, for the first time. I played uh, maybe half of it in 2012 and then just stopped because my computer died or I got distracted. I don't know. So I forget the whole thing. I'm going to be playing it live on Twitch, July 4th, 12 p.m. Eastern, until as long as I can stand. I don't know. I'm I'm going to try to go till 5 p.m., but we'll see. So if you're on Twitch, come by. Hang out. It'll be fun. And that's it. So folks, we're back with a bonus episode this week that's gonna drop Thursday. I'm not gonna tell you who it is, but I'm gonna give you a hint. I will be celebrating the twenty-fifth anniversary of a classic record, We Know and Love, with a member of this band. Uh Huh? See if you can figure it out before then. But I'm hey, I'm back again this week Thursday, so I'm looking forward to seeing you then. Thanks everybody for listening and Until next time.